Smartcast. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. A high schooler pulls off his Ferris Bueller moment when he gets to interview his musical heroes, the Beastie Boys, at Lollapalooza. I see the biggest piece of watermelon I've ever seen, like cartoon-sized watermelon. So I walk right up to him and I was like, I talked to your publicist, Steve Martin, about doing an interview for public access. And he's like, yeah, yeah, you're the kid, we're gonna do it. And I was like, when? He's like, oh, we'll do it now. So grab my friends, Guys, get you the stuff. We're interviewing the Beastie Boys. Hello, welcome back to Sonic Impact. This is Elliot. And Olivia. And Grandma, what is what is your Sonic Impact? What have you been listening to lately? Well, I've been playing uh, Mozart, Duos, uh, Telemann, and Handel. All right. So Fantastic. Grandma, so Grandma is... Finding new artists to discover every day. <laughs> but thanks. That's my mom who stopped by for our... We are obviously not in Los Angeles. Thanks, Trudy. So this week, we're coming to you from Connecticut. <laughs> the landscape here is just divine. So Olivia, tell everybody why we're in Connecticut. We are in Connecticut because this is where you grew up and where your parents reside in the house that you were raised in. So I spent a lot of time here. You've spent a lot of time here, and it's really nice to be together here with the family that we don't get to do very often. Well, it's significant being here in Connecticut because this is where I learned how to play music. This is where, as we just found out from my mom who plays music, so there's a lot of musical memories from this location, and it's nice for us to be together. So before we get into the episode today, just wanted to take a minute for Olivia and I to talk about last week's episode, the feedback and your reaction to our stories was overwhelming. So we just want to thank you for continuing to support us and listen to our shows. But last week had special significance for both of us. It wasn't an easy episode to record, but I really, really appreciate all the people who reached out and said such kind words it really meant a lot to me and to us. It's going to make recording future episodes, I think, a little bit easier. So I don't have to feel like I'm putting on any sort of mask for you listeners. Yeah, Olivia, that's a really good point. So we're trying to record these episodes when we have time between everything that's going on in our lives. And so be patient with us. We'll get to new episodes whenever we can. So let's dive into this week's episode. Before we talk about the Beastie Boys, I had a sonic impact this week that I think was really special. I don't think this is one that may ever happen again. I was at the final Elton John American concert on his final tour at Dodger Stadium. And this is obviously not a new artist, but but the moment at Dodger Stadium that I was lucky enough to be at 
was so historic because Elton got his big start at Dodger Stadium doing big stadium tours. And so to be able to be in the same city where he kind of came full circle, he started the Troubadour, was really special. And that night he had three guest stars, which gave it a very sort of finale feel to it. Dua Lipa, Brandy Carlisle, and Kiki D came and did Don't Go Breaking My Heart. Uh, this show is on Disney Plus, so you can catch it, what we were lucky enough to see. But I think it's hard to put into words what a live final concert is for any artist. And I had never seen Elton John, and he was just at the top of his game. You never saw him before this? That was the first time I ever went and saw an Elton John in concert, and it's his last one. So that's maybe fitting that I did that. But I know you're a huge fan of Elton, Olivia. Yeah, I was a little occupied this summer during the tours that I would have gone to, but he is going to be in Europe this summer and I'm going to try and go because I love Elton so much. I'm a really big fan. And I just similarly with Paul McCartney, I feel this sort of gratitude that I get to be alive at the same time as these people. And I don't want to kick myself in 10, 20 years and just be like, I've, could have seen Elton John and now he's dead and that's just something I could have done and so I just wanted if it's possible I would love to try and have that experience but it wasn't possible for me during the U.S. leg of the tour unfortunately well you forget Elton is 75 he's going to be 76 soon so how many more of these tours could he have done and he's going out on top he really did and I think the biggest thing that stands out for me after thinking about the show is his catalog is arguably up there with the Beatles and Billy Joel and a few other artists, Eagles, who just have so many hits. Yeah, in terms of like not only good songs, but songs that are well-known and loved by the public, it's endless. Yeah, there was probably 25 songs he did and maybe one I didn't know, and there were a bunch he didn't even get to. But all the main great songs he did do, and he ended with Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, which is really fitting. I have to say his voice isn't what it was 30 years ago, but it's still really amazing and rich. And the band is like on top of it. It really was a once in a lifetime, I think. But you can check it out on Disney Plus and anybody in Europe who's listening to us, because we have a lot of listeners in Europe, Olivia. Did you know that? I did not. We actually don't. We have a few. But if you're out there in Europe and, and actually I think in New Zealand and Australia, which we do have some listeners. I have to say one more thing before we move to this week's episode, Olivia. Last week was also the first time you'd ever hosted. And I have to say it was a really different experience. You interviewing me and me being able to tell the story that I've wanted to tell on the show. I thought you did a great job. And especially given with the setup for the show, you really did fantastic. So congrats on your first hosting Thank you very much. I really enjoy hosting, so I hope to do it some more and get some more practice interviewing. And if you have a sonic impact that you think would be fitting for our show, then we're hoping to set something up on our website. It's not yet, but you could find us on social media. I think we're sonic underscore impact underscore podcast. Yeah, so... If you have a good story, you could DM us on Instagram. I think we have a Facebook too. If you know us personally, shoot us a text. We'd love to have you. And coming up next week, 
look out for our Kiss episode with Paul Merkovich, who is the band leader of The Voice, and his story about how he got to tour with Paul Stanley, it was spectacular. So look forward to that. You know some killer people. Well, I'm lucky that I work in a business that allows me to meet a lot of people who have had great experiences. But let's talk about today's episode, which is our first hip-hop artist, the Beastie Boys. So, Olivia, you didn't know a lot about the Beastie Boys. You had never heard their music, right? No, not at all. Wow. So, I mean, look, they were in the 80s and 90s, and that was sort of their heyday. But you found out a lot about them, about how they got their started and where we are when we find them in this episode. So what'd you find out? Yeah. So first I want to just start with when you told me we had our first hip hop group, I pictured a black group as I think many would because hip hop is a black genre. So I was surprised to find out that these guys were white and Jewish. That's right. You don't get a lot of white Jewish rappers. That's true. Yeah, you don't. But um, <laughs> so a little bit about them. So the Beastie Boys came out of the punk rock scene in New York City, and they formed the group in 1981. The members of the Beastie Boys were Michael Diamond, also known as Mike D, Adam Yauk, or Yauch, also known as MCA, and Adam Horovitz, also known as Ad-Rock. So I don't know the origin of these unusual names but well, those fun. those are sort of classic hip-hop names rock and dj and what was the other one? um mike d makes sense but what's mca mc an mc oh mca because he's adam yeah and then add rock okay yeah so like i said they formed in 1981 the beastie boys first gained local recognition with the 1983 comedy hip-hop single called cookie puss yeah, now for people who don't know Cookie Puss, that comes from Carvel, the store. And there was a character called Cookie Puss. So they did a like a joke sort of uh, prank call on uh, Cookie Puss. So it became a sort of a local hit. Okay. Yeah. So very silly and random and weird, um, but gained a lot of attention in 1983. So after they got sort of famous for Cookie Puss, they went on tour with Madonna in 1985, which was pretty big. And then a year later released their debut album called License to Ill in 1986, which was the first rap record to top the Billboard 200 chart. And that was where the big hit was You Gotta Fight for Your Right to Party, which was an MTV staple, which was an anthem. It was not really hip hop, say, but it, it really exposed America to the Beastie Boys. Yeah, that song sounds relevant still today. You Gotta Fight for Your Right to Party? Yeah. I, I guess you do. Sure. Always. If you're a kid, you got to fight. Forever. It's a battle. Fight on, Olivia. Lifelong battle. Um. Anyways, then their second album, Paul's Boutique, was three years later in 1989, and it was composed almost entirely of samples, which is interesting. It was a commercial failure, but received a lot of critical acclaim. And then in the coming years, they released albums called Check Your Head and Ill Communication, which received a lot of mainstream success and attention. Overall, the Beastie Boys have sold 20 million records in the United States, and they are the biggest-selling rap group since Billboard began recording sales in 1991. All right, thanks, Olivia. So our guest today is Brian Terry. Brian is an executive at 
Vice TV. He's had a long career as a producer, including working at MTV at the heyday at TRL. And Brian's story is really, I call it a Ferris Bueller story, because that kid who came up with this plot to find a way against all odds and triumphs. That's what the story is about. So the year is 1994, Olivia, and our story finds Brian as a high school teenager trying to find a way to meet the Beastie Boys. So that's where our story finds us, at Lollapalooza. Yeah, so it's 1994, and the Beastie Boys are headlining Lollapalooza along with the Smashing Pumpkins, the Verve, and a tribe called Quest. But before we get to Lollapalooza, let's go on the journey of how Brian Terry discovered the Beastie Boys. This is the Beastie Boys Sonic Impact on Brian Terry. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Toulousma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Toulousma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on ElectroCast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. Electric Acid. All right, welcome to Sonic Impact. Brian Terry with us this week, and I'm really excited, Brian, because you are the first one who's going to be talking about a hip-hop group, which is really exciting. Yeah, I'm happy to be on, and I think it's really cool what you and your daughter have put together, and I'm excited to be a part of it. So let's go back to the beginning, where you grew up, the first music that you discovered. Yeah, so I grew up in a town called Lake Orion, Michigan, which is a northern suburb of Detroit. I also was the youngest of three, so most of my early music memories were through them. My brother was like into Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd. My sister was into like cheesy rock bands like Styx and Air Supply, but then eventually got into hip hop. I think they equally impacted what I was into and gravitated towards musically sort of set the stage on what your town was like. I don't watch a ton of Stranger Things, but it was a lot of kids on bikes. Really, really idyllic little setting where the neighborhood had a beach. And so, yeah, a lot of time just like playing basketball in the driveway, skateboarding in the driveway, hanging out at the beach. So if you really set the stage here, you grew up in a very Midwestern, small town environment. So you listen to sort of mainstream rock and roll and you discover hip-hop at what point? Tell me sort of the first moment you remember that, that you had access to hip-hop and that you were interested in it. There was something new and fresh about hip-hop at that time. There was just an energy to it that metal or rock or anything else that was like more energetic just didn't hit me the way hip-hop did with like a groove to it that really excited me, I guess like LL Cool J and Houdini and Run DMC, like that would be the stuff that kids would be playing while you'd shoot hoops in someone's driveway or something. Someone would have like a boom box and a tape of Run DMC playing. You're no different than most kids at that era. I think a lot of white kids discovered hip hop. And so it was speaking to kids all over the country. Yeah, right. You think about walk this way, right? It's like, Rock is a rebellion in this way and hip hop sort of rebellion in a different way, but it's all the same. Like we're all giving the middle finger to our parents. So let's talk about the first moment you discovered the Beastie Boys. When was it? Where were you? And what was that memory like? 
you know, you're watching MTV in that time and you're seeing Walk This Way, you're seeing Bon Jovi and other like heavy metal, ultra masculine. And so then this thing comes out, fight for your right to party. It's obviously white kids. It's kind of rap. There's definitely rock riffs and stuff into it. And so then when you see it, it's just these guys who are being absolutely crazy, just party animals, right? And you're just like, oh my gosh, that's so crazy and fun and rebellious. It was cool. And that's the way I was sort of introduced to it. But what it did was introduce me to like that album. And then that album is where I was just like, whoa, this is cool. But like, Paul Revere was the one to me and like just the story, very easy, very clear, funny. And like the beat to me, that was a song where it was like, I want to learn every word to this. Yeah, that was to me, I think the song was probably the one that just like hooked me. And let's be honest, they were white hip hop artists, which was unusual then. So I have to think that having these young teenage white guys, you know, that rock spirit, with hip hop must have spoke to you in a way that maybe some other hip hop didn't? Well, I mean, I can see myself more just in, again, looking at the music video, these dudes are wearing baseball hats and Vision Streetwear shirts. Like I'm at home wearing a baseball hat and Vision Streetwear shirt. Was it a record or was it a CD? The first thing I had was a cassette tape. Licensed to Ill, I bought it at a Kmart and it was a cassette tape. But flash forward to getting to the age where I had a car and this is right when like CDs are becoming a thing and everyone's like, okay, I guess I'm making the investment. We're switching all my whole libraries going. So the first CD I bought was also licensed ill. You never forget your first, Brian, as they say. That's right. Didn't they have a song, I just have a memory about Cookie Puss? Yeah. So basically they prank called Carvel Ice Cream, asked to speak to Cookie Puss and they recorded the prank call, kind of like the Jerky Boys or whatever. And then they set it to a beat. And then the next thing you know, that beat got used in a British Airways commercial. And that's how the Beastie Boys made their first couple grand or something. It's like they got paid royalties because I think it was British Airways used Cookie Puss. I remember, yo, we want to talk to Cookie Puss. I remember that. To see how this continues for my 40th birthday, God bless her. My wife got me a Cookie Puss cake from Carvel. So let's jump now to the next moment that the Beastie Boys and you connected. You were in high school at this point, and you get an opportunity to go see the Beastie Boys. It's an amazing moment for you as a young fan. So, you know, flash forward to 1992, and at the end of that summer, find out that the Beastie Boys are coming to play in Pontiac, which is like five minutes from where I grew up, on the roof of a parking garage. Wait, wait. The Beastie Boys, who are big at this point, after License Seal are going to play on a parking lot. Yeah, so this is on the Check Your Head Tour. So like, they were huge after License Deal, and obviously they sort of like went away, and Paul's Boutique was, no one commercially got it. So Check Your Head, they're sort of like working their way back up through the club circuit. And for whatever reason, the club venue that fit the Beastie Boys in Pontiac, Michigan, it's called the Phoenix Center, but it was nothing more than a band shell on the roof of a parking garage. So it was one of the first concerts I ever got to like go to by myself. I'm 15 and it was pure energy, right? Just seeing them, it was like watching them get shot out of a cannon. And like two hours later, we all landed together and we're just like, whoa, that was a crazy ride. It was so cool. And it was just like, I felt this like connection and it's weird, but I, I genuinely felt that. And then flash forward three months later, 
the Beastie Boys are now going to play in Detroit on New Year's Eve. And I'm like, what? This is too good to be true. The Beastie Boys, New Year's Eve. So again, same group of friends. We all get in a van, head down to Detroit, see that concert, New Year's Eve. Amazing. And at that point, after seeing them the first two times, I was like, I got to meet these guys. Like seeing them, this is cool, but like I've got to figure out a way to like do something more here. And that's when the wheels started turning of like, how can I try to meet the Beastie Boys? All right, before we get that, I need to go back to this concert because everyone has these first concert experiences, which are always mind-blowing just to see a concert, right? When you're 15 or 16. But to see the band that you're sort of obsessed with, and it's the Beastie Boys who are a, as you said, like shot out of a cannon. What does that do to a 15-year-old kid who's just sort of discovering music, live music? That's a special moment that changed your life. I mean, it was just invigorating and just introduced you to the power of live music. I like listening to this in my car, in my bedroom or whatever, but like seeing this live and seeing it performed and what that can do, it was something else. Because I mean, I've seen probably close to a thousand concerts since. And I'm sure that first one had a lot to do with me being like, no, this is a source of really good time. All right. I want to jump forward to the moment when the Beastie Boys and your world collided and changed your life forever. Sure. So again, we were talking about those concerts. That was 92. Flash forward 94, I'm getting ready to graduate high school. And uh, Lollapalooza at that point was this big touring thing that had just gotten going a couple of years previous. And it's announced that Beastie Boys are going to play Lollapalooza with Smashing Pumpkins and Tribe Called Quest and George Clinton and like all these bands and groups that I was like totally into. Uh, Lollapalooza is going to play the amphitheater, which is like six miles from my house. It's going to play four days. And so at the time I was in this TV class in high school, television production workshop. So I knew a little bit about TV and Wayne's World obviously was a thing. And I was like, that's it. If I have a public access show, maybe the Beastie Boys will come on my public access show. And knowing them and like the kind of stuff they did, I was like, you know what, this might work. So no idea how to do any of this, but this is the plan. So I call information. Hi, they have the phone number to Capitol Records in Los Angeles. So I call Capitol Records and I'm like, may I speak to someone about interviewing the Beastie Boys? And they're like, oh, good. And so, you know, five exchanges later, someone's just like, who are you? What? And I was like, hi, you know, I just want to interview the Beastie Boys, Lollapalooza. And they're like, Lollapalooza, it's its own thing. You got to talk to them. Hang up. By the way, Brian, you sound probably at this point like you're in high school. You're calling Capitol Records in Los Angeles. Like, what a kid, you know, like who is calling us? It's ignorance is bliss, man. I was just full steam ahead and I was just going. You were a teenager on a mission. Yeah, had to meet Beastie Boys. So they're like, okay, call Lollapalooza. Same thing, information, Lollapalooza. Somehow get a number. This lady takes my call and she's, okay, what you have to do is you have to send a cover letter from your show or network explaining what you want to do and and then we'll look at it and then we'll get back to you. So I go to school the next day and I asked my teacher, I was like, I need letterhead. He's like, oh, we've got letterhead for the television class. I'm like, great, I'm using it. So (laughs) 
still have the letter to this day to Julie Arkenstone. That was her name at Lollapalooza who ran publicity. And I write her this note. I'm like, I'm a senior in high school and I work for the television production workshop and I want to do a TV show on Lollapalooza. And can you give me backstage passes for four days because I really want to interview the Beastie Boys. So send this letter off. Don't hear anything. And I'm calling probably daily, right? Like every day, like, hi, it's Brian. Just wondering if any of the people are going to be on my Lollapalooza show, you know. So one day I come home from school and my mom's like, Brian, a woman named Julie Arkenstone from Lollapalooza called you and you have to call her back. And I was like, what? And my mom tells the story now where this lady calls and, you know, she answers. She's like, hi, I'm looking for Brian. My mom's like, well, you know, he's at school. She's like, at school? She's like, yeah, he's at high school. And this woman's <laughs> like, do you understand your son is like trying to interview all these bands at our festival and like trying to set up this whole thing? And my mom's just sort of like, it doesn't surprise me, but I'll have him call you back. I get a hold of the woman and she's like, listen, so here's the deal. Some of these bands have agreed to do your show. And at the time, I had never heard of any of these bands. Flaming Lips, The Verve. And I was like, awesome. Does that mean I'm in? She's like, yeah, yeah. They'll go on this day. You'll have press passes. You'll get an area to set up to do your interviews. You're in, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, oh my God, I'm in. I am going to go to Lollapalooza for free and get to interview bands. Brian, why are they letting a teenager go do this? And why are these bands saying yes to you, like the Verve? And like, that's a pretty big deal. This isn't a known show. Right. But I think in 1994 in Michigan, when they're there for four days, like how many media requests are there? Right. So I know now that I'm going to go to Lollapalooza and I'm going to interview some bands, but I'm still trying to get the Beastie Boys. And at this point, the woman from Lollapalooza lets me know, oh, the Beastie Boys have their own publicist. And if you are going to talk to them, you've got to go through this publicist, Steve. So I contact this guy, Steve Martin, at Nasty Little Man. Well, he's like, send me some stuff that you've done. So I send him like this senior project, basically like me hosting the equivalent of like a video yearbook, the most boring, worst, but send it, send it to him. <laughs> it's the only thing I hadn't. That's a big sell for the Beastie Boys to go on that okay. show. So again, go to the post office, put a VHS in, send it off to New York City. And once I had that phone number, was probably calling every day. Hey, you watch the tape? Watch the tape, you got it? Am I going to do it? Meanwhile, I hear a couple more bands are like, oh, Tribe Called Quest, they're going to do your show. And I'm like, whoa, that's awesome. You know, and, and like, again, like this crazy, because to your point, there is no show. There's no reason for them to do this at all. So maybe two days before the first day of Lollapalooza, where I'm going to get to go do this interview. And I call Nasty Little Man again. And I'm like, hey, is Steve there? This is Brian. I'm supposed to find out if I'm going to interview the Beastie Boys in two days. And they're like, Steve's on vacation in Hawaii. I was like, did he leave a message? Did he tell everyone that? No, Steve's in Hawaii. Okay, that stinks. So go to Lollapalooza, set up my camera with my two buddies, neither of which are qualified to be holding a camera or the one who was carrying a tripod was barely qualified to do that. And we set up in this little 
food court area and we're interviewing all the bands. And this is at the time when I'd get all the press stuff, they'd send you the eight by 10. Again, I know no etiquette. Every band that comes through, hey, you autograph my publicity photo? Like I'm just a kid in a candy store. Like no idea that like you just don't do that. I'm just going for sign this. Awesome. Cool. So we're doing that. And the last interview of the day is Tribe Called Quest. And it's going to be great because then afterwards we can go watch the shows, which includes Beastie Boys. So interviewing Tribe Called Quest and one of the guys isn't there. And I was like, oh, you know, I have my 8x10 publicity photo. I'd really like to get Q-Tip's autograph. Like you guys go back and like get him sign it. They're like, why don't you just walk back there with us and we'll have him sign it awesome and it's total wayne's world moment it's like yeah sure i'll go backstage trap called quest why not you know i'm like freaking out at this point by the way the fact that you're even there and have tickets to go to the show for free is enough the fact that now you're interviewing bands and going back to stage oh, it, it's it, just like a dream come true but the holy grail is still out there it's still out there and so i walk back there and honestly lame as it sounds but it's a god's honest truth it's like this and the moment i saw my wife are the two things like visually i remember forever I walk down and I see straight ahead Mike D eating the biggest piece of watermelon I've ever seen. Just face dived in, just like cartoon sized watermelon. And I'm waiting for Q-Tip to sign my little publicity photo. And I see Mike D and I'm like, this is it. So I walk right up to him and I was like, Mike, my name is Brian Terry. I talked to your publicist, Steve Martin, about doing an interview with you guys for the public access. I'm going on on this like nerdy rant. And he's like, yeah, yeah, you're the kid. We're going to do it. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, no, you're, you're the kid. We know about it. We're going we're gonna to do this. And I was like, when? He's like, well, we'll do it now. And so my friends, my camera operator and tripod holder are back at this point watching George Clinton, watching the concert. I'm saying the time I ran from that backstage to those dudes I would have taken anybody. I was flying. Grabbed them and was like, guys, get you the stuff. We're interviewing the Beastie Boys. And they're like, what? I was like, oh, yeah, this is happening, and it's happening now. <laughs> so, yeah, my head is, like, spinning. And I knew, I knew what I was going to ask them, right? And, like, what I would do, because they always just like to mess with interviewers if they ask them the normal stuff. So I was like, I'm just going to, like, play with them back. So... They show up and it's two of them. It's Ad-Rock and Mike D and then their DJ at the time, DJ Hurricane, and do the interview. And, you know, I'm asking them about basketball and golf game and just like silly things that like jokes that they had done in other interviews. I was sort of like playing into those jokes. Were you nervous at all at this point, Brian? Like, I would think you had been freaking out. Like if I had known about it, I might have been nervous because it was like, a yeah, we'll do it, but you got to do it now. It was sort of just like, go, 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 go. You, let's do this. And so do the interview. And then sure enough, like the rest of the festival, the next three days, they ended up giving us passes and we went every day. And then on the last day, we're backstage and they had a basketball hoop that they'd set up and we'd get to shoot like hoops with them. And it was crazy, right? I'm like, oh, like call up my buddy. Like, hey, you want to go to the Lollapalooza today? We're going to go shoot baskets with Beastie Boys and like Billy Corgan. It was just stupid like surreal right and so the last day i think i mentioned before i played soccer growing up so i played travel soccer we had these really cool jerseys and i was like you know what i'm gonna give ad rock my soccer jersey like that's gonna be my final like hey thank you this has been awesome like i want you to have this kind of thing so 
back there and they're getting ready to go on or whatever. And I was like, Hey man, I just want you to like have this, like, thank you guys. You guys have been amazing. This has been, you know, totally dream come true right away, takes his shirt off, puts it on. And I was like, that's cool. And then their security or road people or whatever, walk me and my friend across the stage, put us in the pit, like in between the stage and the front row. So we can watch that final show like there and then they come running out on stage. He's wearing my soccer jersey. And it was just like, was no. It. And at that point, as a kid, like that was the equivalent of me hitting a home run or scoring a touchdown at the homecoming game, right? To the hundred or so kids who I went to high school with, that was my mic drop moment. There it is. I pulled it off. And all your friends were at Lollapalooza that could see oh, yeah. you wearing your shirt? Yeah, like the whole school, you know? So it was like one of those moments where it was just like... Ferris yeah. Bueller. Yeah, it was, it was a Ferris Bueller, like, I just pulled this one off. But I think okay. they always just appreciated, like, the DIY of it all, right? Like, they started their own record label, started their own magazine. It was all do-it-yourself. And so I think they just appreciated of all the interviews and people being sent out by publications that this was this kid who just really wanted to do this strictly for his own purpose. Did they know that you were so obsessed with them, like that you did this whole thing to get there, like this was all bullshit? Did you ever reveal that to them? Not really, no, because I mean, at the end of the day, like I, I ended up doing it. Now I'm sitting with these tapes and I'm like, I got to do something with this. I went to the public access station and taught myself how to edit and I edited a half hour TV show. I was probably in that edit for like nine days, like all day, like at the public access station when I should have been like out on a boat sneaking beers or whatever. Did they know you were a huge fan though, like that this was a big deal? I think they must have picked up on that a little bit just on the questions I was asking that I'm maybe on their level at least a little bit. I bet in a way they respected you because you were prepared. You probably asked really good questions. You were completely obsessed with them and knowledgeable. So in a way, at least you weren't some dumb kid that was just asking dumb questions. I think so. But I would have asked them questions till right now had they not cut me off. You know, I was just so excited. So at one point, like Ad Rock's just like, okay, we got to go now. I'm like, oh yeah, you got to go because you're the greatest and it's been the greatest. And uh... were you in the show too? Like, were you in the interviews with them or? Oh yeah, yeah. Me and my stick mic with a cord and my jean shorts and my bad haircut, all of it. It's all in there. Absolutely incredible story. It's a teenage dream come true. It's taking control of your destiny and making something happen. And in the world that we know, entertainment is very hard to break through and sort of get past security or whatever. You pulled this all off just with ingenuity and persistence. It's a great foreshadowing for what you end up doing going on to be in television and being a producer and an executive. So I have to ask the question, was this the moment that inspired you to pursue a career in television? Totally. Once I was able to achieve that, just to pull it off out of thin air and enjoyed it, right? It was like, oh, this is cool. You get to be at an event and find out about people and talk to people and see live music. I mean, I already knew at that point I was going to do something in media or whatever, but at, that solidified the fact if I could pull that off, I could probably do some stuff because it, it just reminded me that just you got to try. It's so cool. It's like this sonic impact also inspired your career in a way. So it was a musical impact and a 
cultural impact and a technical impact and sort of like led you down a path. You know, it's rare that you get sort of all of it as a teenager in one moment, all colliding. I, I understood then like how rare that was. You know, I'm in college four months later and most people are like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know. And I am like, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I hit the turbo button a couple months ago and I am on the track and I am flying. And so that was never lost on me. I was pretty set on it. So did you use this technique again and all in college, like getting in places, saying you were with somebody and getting tickets and interviewing? So I went to college and obviously every band I wanted to interview, I told my interview the Beastie Boys. And because the Beastie Boys were sort of these auteurs of cool, I kind of had a green light for almost every band because they're like, oh, if the Beastie Boys think this kid is okay. Amazing. This really did continue to pay off dividends in your college life and then your post-college life and your long career. So congratulations on that moment. That's just awesome. You know, it's this, this podcast is called Sonic Impact, and obviously this wasn't all about music. But talk about sonically, thinking back as this young kid who's in a teenager living in Michigan, what the Beastie Boys meant to you then and sort of how that's continued with you in your life. Sure. It was always about confidence, right? There was this confidence in that music that as, you know, a scrawny little teenage boy, like you're looking for sources of confidence. And that music for me sort of instilled a little bit of that. And even now, you know, if I'm driving around, that's usually when I'll listen to Beastie Boys is if I'm driving by myself, it's to kind of like pump me up or to like reminding myself of like life is good that is still very much something that that works. Did you ever run into them again, meet them, hang out with them all those years later? Yeah, so I went in college. I was interning in New York and I uh, I could only intern like a couple days a week. You couldn't intern full time. And so I found Nasty Little Man, their publicist's office and went down there and was like knocked on the door and literally the same guy who would like get me backstage three years later answers the door, his jaw drops, he's like, oh my God, it's you again. What are you doing here? I'm like, I told you I'd be bad, but can I intern? And so I interned for Nasty Little Man for a summer, um, which was cool because I'd answer the phone every day, say, hello, Nasty. And then the next summer that album came out, Hello, Nasty. So I interned for Nasty Little Man. And then when I worked at MTV, To the Five Burrows came out in 2004. And MTV did like a record release half hour with the Beastie Boys. And so I, I wrote that show because at that point, like everyone at MTV knew, like as far as the Beastie Boys go, that's the dude. And I remember talking to them a little bit and Steve, the publicist, I think reminding them like, oh, do you guys remember this was the kid who like, in, in like they kind of remembered. And I also remember that day because that was the day that the Pistons beat the Lakers in the championship. And so we were watching the Pistons win the finals with Beastie Boys. So that was sort of the last time I was like near them and then saw them, you know, a couple more times in concert. Brian, this is just an amazing story. It still must sort of blow you away that you pulled this off and that this happened, right? Totally. And and I would say as time goes on, it only makes you realize more, right? You only have more perspective because ignorance is bliss. Like I just didn't know that you shouldn't call people 800 times a day. There's a bunch of stuff I just didn't know and rules I didn't play by. But I think because of that ignorance, I was sort of able to power through and figure it out. But yeah, it's certainly not lost on me and something I'm ridiculously grateful for. 
looking back, how do you sum up the impact that the Beastie Boys had on your life? And it wasn't just at that time, sort of your whole life. It's a good question. I guess it's just inspiration, right? They just continue to be a source of inspiration in a lot of different directions. And that's a pretty cool relationship to have with an artist. I got two final thoughts. Young man, you had big balls. <laughs> and secondly, this was one cool band because not a lot of bands would have allowed a kid to interview oh, them, hang out with them, and continue to connect with them through their life. Totally. Right, right. The coolest. It is absolutely crazy to think about it, but I'm grateful that it exists for sure. I, I knew this was going to be a great story. I definitely exceeded my expectations and congratulations on all your success, but on what is a life-changing moment for you. So appreciate you being on Sonic Impact. Elliot, I appreciate you having me on. And uh, yeah, like I said, I think that's awesome that you do this with your daughter and I uh, hope you get to continue to do many, many more. Olivia, I know you and you love to meet celebrities. You love to think about how to meet celebrities. This is the ultimate story of a teenager obsessed with a band not only gets to meet these celebrities, like his whole life starts taking a journey with them. This story blew my mind because, yes, I relate. I feel like I do spend way too much of my time thinking about meeting my idols and how to meet them and what I would do if I did meet them. And he just did it. Like, the way that he literally just did it is just so amazing to me as a 17-year-old. I think he was 17. And I'm older than that now. And I just, I do think that what he said about the ignorance was definitely important because I do feel like I'm just way too in my head to be like, I who am I? Like, like, I'm just too aware to feel like I could just call up the record label and asked to interview them at a major music festival, but the confidence, you really just need the confidence and the drive and sort of just like the mentality that what's the worst that can happen may as well try, I guess. And I don't know. It's just, it's awesome. It's one thing to come up with a plan to try to meet your heroes it's another thing for it to be successful and you to spend the whole weekend at Lollapalooza with them. I mean, the ingenuity of a 17-year-old who calls the record label, calls the publicist, gets there, finds a way to meet the Beastie Boys, it is just unfathomable. And I'm my hat's off to Brian. I think it really does sort of portend where Brian's going to go in his career and knows that he can interview bands he can produce television and so i think this story is as much of a sonic impact it's like a career impact of what it did to him totally and i went to coachella when i was 17 my senior year of high school so sort of similar vibe similar energy similar like life experience at the time and i was just so psyched to be going like to be in attendance at this festival and to see the artists that I loved so much and was going to see, like, that was just such a big deal. So I don't know, like, for him to just be so driven to do way more than just that, which is, like, so cool in itself. 
Well, you think about it, when you discover a band when you're 14, 15, 16 years old, it's a big deal. And you really get into them. You really become obsessed with that artist. And then a few years later, to be thinking like, okay, I'm going to try to meet them. I'm going to try to get in to see them. But then come up with this whole elaborate plot of like, you know, I'm going to do a TV show at Lollapalooza when I don't have a TV show. Like it was very much like if you've ever seen the movie Almost Famous, the teenage journalist who sort of lies about his age to become a journalist. This is sort of like that. They call Brian's house and his mom picks up and is like, hi, Brian's at school. He can't come to the phone right now. And I just love his, like you said, his innocence, his sort of like naivete. He's like, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to try. And I'm dying now to see the public access show of him putting this whole thing together. I would love to see that too. Yeah, it's a really cool thing he did. You know, like trying to meet a celebrity can easily come off as sort of creepy. And (laughs) you would know. I wouldn't know. (laughs) I just say that to say, like, a lot of people will try and follow their favorite person um, in public and things, but he just did it in such a smart way that made it so, like, legit legit yeah so it was just like gave him a reason you know like he was interviewing them he had a reason to be in that place in time and like i think because of that he was able to like feel maybe a little more qualified to be talking to them because you know they like they agreed to that and he's he's thinking of himself as like i don't know yeah like legit i don't but i don't know if he was in his head like oh i'm I'm the real deal. I'm awesome. Or if he was like a little part of him was like, okay, I have no idea what I'm doing. I just don't know. One of the things I'm so impressed about was his confidence and poise. Like he never seemed to freak out if you're 17 years old and you're not only meeting, you know, your musical heroes, but you're interviewing them. You're spending the weekend with them. You have to be freaking out. I don't know how you can sort of be calm about that. So hats off to Brian. I mean, he became sort of friends with them. And I love the part of the story when he gives them his soccer shirt and he, they, and, and they actually put it on and wear it for Lollapalooza. Like that is the greatest Ferris Bueller victorious moment where you can see him like looking around all of his high school friends going, look at that. He's wearing my shirt. With his name on it. Did it have his name on it? I think so. It probably did. Seriously. Yeah. I mean, it's really cool that the band did that. Even kept the jersey, you know? I could see them being like, I don't want that. But (laughs) keep it and put it on for the show. I think that also just shows that, like, I don't know, something cool about the band that they didn't have any outfits planned that were very important to them no and that's the fact that they even gave him an interview it wasn't clear he was going to get that interview for a while but the fact they're like yeah we'll just do it right now clearly they're a very cool bunch of guys and they were probably a little older than brian at that point right they were probably in their early 20s a bunch of dudes playing basketball i just think it's also so great olivia how he uses this moment as almost like a launch pad to go to college and interview bands to go and work at mtv he's an intern with the beastie boys at one point like this kid was so focused and really had a vision of how he wanted to like go on in his life now and he's like i love this being around bands interviewing bands i'm gonna do that and he did yeah quite an inspiring story honestly for anyone at any age if a kid can do that what's our excuse (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I think, like we said, because he didn't have a lot of experience and he didn't know to say no, or um, I just love the moment his mom answers the phone and yeah. says, I'm sorry, Brian's not home now. He's at school. Like at no, school. It's a total Ferris Bueller. I could picture it in a movie, this whole thing. Yeah, it really is just movie moment. Yeah, it is the kid journalist. It is almost famous meets Ferris Bueller, and I just love it. I I also want to just say because Brian has really gone into have a successful career as a TV producer. You know, these stories are great sonic impacts. You know, the the sound of the Beastie Boys really spoke to this teenage kid in Michigan, this hip hop band, and yes, they're white, and there probably was some relatability to that. That sort of natural. But I think this impact is so much more than just the sound. It's he learned how to interview people. He learned how to produce television. He learned that he could do this. And so looking at his whole life now and his career, the Beastie Boys really were in many ways the inspiration, not just sonically, but for a career impact. And he did it. Pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> So, Olivia, I was just thinking about because you are close in age, a little older, but you're sort of in that zone of obsession with music and concerts. Like, think about an artist that's comparable for you, Ed Sheeran or Harry Styles, and you call up the record label and you actually get to go backstage for four days and hang out with Harry Styles or Ed Sheeran. What would that be like for you? I'm actually thinking about Billy in this situation. And I don't know how I would be able to keep my cool at all. And I have this feeling that Billy and I would just be the greatest of friends and get along so well. But I don't know how I would be able to let her know how cool I am because I feel like I would just be panicking the whole time. But I don't want that to be the case. So I feel like I need to like mentally prepare. I think you'd rise to the occasion. Look, now you're doing a podcast show and you're interviewing and you're hosting. I think you would at that moment, just like Brian probably did sort of take it in and, and do what you need to do. Which I is- just can't imagine being in the, like experiencing these people as people and not as heroes that are standing on a stage or in photographs, you know? I think you do, but if you get a chance to interview them, it's a different scenario. And, you know, it's different than just meeting them and saying hi. Yeah. And because because at the end of the day, I do feel this connection I do with Billy. I feel like if slash when I do meet her, I I will be able to, like you said, sort of compartmentalize my panicking. And I think this story honestly has given me a lot to think about in terms of like just finding the will within yourself to get what you want you know and as long as it's not like harmful to others and impeding on them in any way you just got to go after it and after the interview I listened in on it I said that to Brian and or I said like I feel like these days it's so much harder and he said something like oh you'd be surprised there's always ways and I'm like well if there's ways I need to figure out the ways before someone else does I'm gonna it's I just, I got to figure out the ways. Well, I think, I think the bigger message here is, as I think back, obviously, you know, we've had Brian, when I think back on this story, I look at it, why I love doing this show and love doing these stories, because we're now older. A lot of these folks who are doing our interviews 
but we're capturing the moment close to where you were in your life, the first discovery of an artist, the impact of the music and the concert and just the whole obsession with that band and then how it actually can turn into something that changes your life. I think, And I think this story is maybe sort of the most complete sonic impact where it literally never left him and it's still with him today as he's still working in television, still producing. And he looks back in that moment, the Beastie Boys really did change his life. It's pretty amazing to be able to pinpoint your whole life to something like that. And you just reminded me something, Olivia. Last week's episode, for those who listened, we did the Crowded House episode where I talked about how I discovered Crowded House. And later, a podcaster in New Zealand reached out to me and found the recording that I was at, the concert in 1987 in Madison, Wisconsin. And he got me the whole concert. I listened to it and I was transported back to that moment in my life. And I could hear those songs again for the first time since that moment. I want to thank that podcaster, CR, who sent me that audio. And it's just a reminder of, for those of you who are young, the moments you're having now may have that lasting resonance. And so appreciate them, enjoy them, because they can stick with you your whole life. Olivia. Yeah, I have and I will continue to. So before we go, every week we like to ask our guests for their top five songs from their artist, their sonic impact. So Brian's top five songs from the Beastie Boys are Stand Together, Root Down, The New Style, Professor Booty, and Shake Your Rump. I love Brian not picking the most popular Beastie Boys songs. That's like deep tracks. I love that. So check those out. We hope you'll come back and listen to more episodes. We have our next one is Kiss with the band leader of The Voice, which is really cool. We always are looking for stories, so feel free to send them in. And we want to just thank you once again for listening. We appreciate every one of you for coming back each week and sending us your feedback and enjoying the stories as much as we enjoy telling them. So Olivia, thank you for being in the same room with me to record for once. That's pretty special. Yes, it's been a lot of fun. I like when I can see your face in the flesh while we talk about music. That's right. And hopefully we'll be able to do more of those soon. So thanks everybody. Have a great holiday season and keep listening to Sonic Impact. Bye. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that the No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. Touchdown! On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. If you're a working professional, wondering what's next for your career, you've come to the right place. Whether you're looking for a promotion, growth, or a potential career transition, look no further. With over 30 years working in a variety of industries, I share my insider knowledge with those ready to get ahead on Career Advancement with Craig Ansell. Tune in to get your strategies for success. Electric acid.